Peter, chapter 1 this morning. Sunday mornings we're studying 1 Peter. If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we like everybody to have a Bible. And so there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, just waving at their attention. They'll get one into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, then absolutely make that a gift to yourself, to you, and, um, and become a great student of this wonderful, wonderful book. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Peter's life. Thank you for your faithfulness to him. Thank you for thinking of us 2,000 years later as you ministered in and through his life. We thank you for the voice of your Holy Spirit through his letters. Thank you for all that's contained in these verses, Lord, that we so desperately need to know. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be very strong in our hearts this morning, very strong in our midst in this place today, to think that we can hear you from the throne of heaven right in this room. Lord, we're amazed. We thank you for that privilege, and we ask for you to do just that in each one of our lives. We give you praise in prayer, as we have just done in song for your love for us. Thank you that we need never doubt it. Thank you, Lord, that you love us all of the time. We know you express your love in a lot of different ways, but, Lord, you always love us, unfailing in that. And we're humbled by that, and we're grateful for that. And we need that, Lord. We thank you for the greatness of your love. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, over and over and over again. We give you praise this morning, so thankful that you are our God and that when in our search for God, that you are the God that we discovered. We couldn't improve upon you in any way, Lord. We are so thankful to know you and to be your children. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Second Peter was written under the shadow of death, not only the shadow of death related to the Christians who were being persecuted and also being martyred for the simple reason that they loved the Lord Jesus and had a relationship with him, a relationship that they were being faithful to at a time in human history in which it was very, very dangerous to uh, have that relationship at a time of a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Nero. But it isn't just death that kind of sets the tone in terms of the larger persecution of, of the body of Christ and the Roman Empire at that time, but death is approaching the Apostle Peter himself very, very quickly as a part of that same persecution. And Peter is aware of it. He knows that death is coming close. It's one thing for death to come and, and take us by surprise. It's another thing when it comes and we know that it is coming and that it is swiftly uh, approaching. And Peter, you notice, he said in verse 14 concerning his awareness of all of this, he said, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. Now, Peter knew what form that his death would take. He knew kind of the age that he would be when he would die. He knew he would die in old age. 
But he knew the form that his death would take. Very few people know what form their death is ultimately going to take. It it uh, comes as a surprise to us sometimes in just a moment or sometimes toward the end of our life and we realize that this is what is has come into our life and will uh, usher us into heaven. But Peter knew what form his death would take because Jesus had told him. And following Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he met with the apostles up in the northern area of Galilee on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he spoke to those disciples a number of things. And most of what's recorded was what Jesus spoke to Peter as he restored him into his commission as an apostle following his denial of knowing Jesus three times. And so Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. And and this recommissioning him and allowing him to kind of overwhelm the three denials with three expressions of his love. But Jesus did not leave it there. He went on to say to Peter, Verily, verily, I say to you, When you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, so Peter, you're going to live to old age, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this Jesus spoke signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. And so Peter knew that he was not going to die a natural death. He knew he was going to die a martyr's death. He knew he was going to die a violent death for simply being faithful to God's calling upon his life. And so history tells us that Peter did die exactly the death that Jesus had declared that he would. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book. It's a worthy read for any Christian to invest time in that. And it tells us concerning uh, church history and tradition related to the death of Peter that not long after the writing here of Second Peter, ultimately uh, Peter was went to Rome. Ultimately, he was uh, imprisoned for nine months for his faith, at the end of which he was severely scourged. And then he was crucified with his head upside down. Uh, it is said that he requested that position, not considering himself worthy to be crucified in the same position uh, as his Lord. It's hard for me to picture in my own mind and my own heart to picture uh, this man that I love so much through the scriptures. I mean, I'm separated by 2,000 years of history, separated from him at this moment between being here on the earth. He is in heaven, but we come to love him so much from the scriptures, and it's hard to think of him and visualize his dead body upon a cross hanging upside down as a part of a Roman persecution against Christians for simply being faithful uh, to the Lord. And yet, as we see here, Peter went to that death without a single complaint or grievance against what was awaiting him. We ask ourselves, why no complaint? Why no grievance? Because that death represented the will and the purpose of God for his life. And so he died that death without any hesitation, without any regret for the privilege of following Jesus and being faithful to his call upon his life. Do you realize that it is a greater blessing to be in the middle of God's will, even in death, than it is to be outside of God's will And enjoy life. Because there's no enjoyment of life. Everything is about all of life, all meaning, everything is found in the will of God for our lives. Again, I think of that plaque that I read in an office one time. God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And ultimately, that's where we all come to in our life with Christ. And so he looked at that and all he cared about was being in the will of God and being faithful to the Lord. It reminds me, <clears throat> excuse me, of the words that a man by the name of Ittai said to King David in the Old Testament at a time when King David 
was fleeing for his life from the city of Jerusalem because of a revolution started by his son Absalom. And Ittai said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 15, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or in life, there, even there also your servant will be. And Ittai felt that toward David and a lesser king, we esteem him highly, but not as high as Jesus. Ittai felt this toward uh, a purely human king and Peter felt the same thing toward the Lord Jesus. Now why would Jesus tell Peter that he would live to an old age and then die a martyr's death? I mean, most of us don't want to know when we're going to die and we don't want to know how we're going to die. So if God comes and tells us, it's like, TMI, 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 too much information. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You know surprise me on that. Because we don't want our present to be dominated by that kind of knowledge. So it can almost seem like it's cruel that Jesus is telling Peter ahead of time uh, when he's going to die and how he's going to die when most people are not interested in that Information, But it really wasn't cruelty at all on the part of Jesus. Jesus was communicating to Peter after following his three denials. Peter, you're going to be faithful to me to the end. You're going to live to be an old man. They're going to threaten you with crucifixion. And ultimately, you're going to die crucified upside down. That's the plans they have for you. And yet you will go through all of that Facing the worst death that can be meted out on another human being, you will face all of that and never deny me again. And what we could consider as being kind of hard news or a difficult thing for Peter to hear wasn't difficult for him to hear at all. That assurance that he was never going to deny the Lord as he once had, but be faithful all the way to the end. It's interesting to notice, too, that Peter likens his death, the death of a Christian, to putting off this tent. And he repeats that phrase twice, once in verse 13 and then again in verse 14. It's very, very helpful imagery, very, very uh, instructive imagery. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people lived in tents. They were travel. They were tribes. They were nations that sometimes uh, dwelt in tents and moved around. They're very mobile kind of people. Even today, parts of the world, they live in tents and they move accordingly. Uh, you go to Israel today, and if you go into the uh, a tour that takes you in the D- Judean wilderness, you'll see the Bedouin tents set up all over the place. And so they've got these tents, and there's cars parked outside of them, sometimes Mercedes, and uh, they've got satellite dishes and the whole thing. I'll tell you, when I lived in a tent as a kid, that was a real tent. Not like tent living today, satellite dishes and Mercedes, oy vey. <laughs> but they do. And in the ancient world, when you would strike your tent in order to move someplace else, it was because you were done, usually with pasturing the flock in that area, you struck the tent to move to a better place. And that's the imagery that Peter is using here. The Apostle Paul spoke of the physical body. Our physical body is a tent, Second Corinthians chapter 5. For we know, speaking to us as Christians, that if our earthly house, this tent, this body is a tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a home, a house not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. And so they, this body that we have, it's temporary. We don't think of it as temporary, but it is temporary. And, uh, and, and that's what we inhabit. The thing about a tent is if you've ever had one over time, they don't hold up like houses hold up. I was talking one time, we were doing a, a trip to Israel, and there was a building inspector from San Jose. He attended the fellowship, and uh, he was on the trip, and we're looking at these things, these buildings of hundreds of years and ruins of thousands of years ago. And I said, how long do we build houses to last in the United States? He says, well, the codes are, are, are such that a house is intended to last at least 100 years. 
And, you know, you go to Europe and they build them for hundreds of years. Uh, and, and that's kind of the idea with it. But because our nation is so young and we still haven't uh, finalized our land use, that what is a neighborhood in one generation may be torn down for a, an industrial park or a factory in the next generation or vice versa. So we don't build houses for forever because that's just where we are in the history of this nation. But a tent is temporary, and a tent wears out. You take it up, you take it down, you move, you use it, and pretty soon holes are developing in it, and it starts to fall apart. And one day, if the Lord should tarry, the Bible teaches for us as Christians that we're going to lay these tents, these physical bodies down, and that will result in us not being, as Paul wrote, a disembodied spirit as a result of it, but in order that we might be uh, further clothed with a body that is made for eternity and that is made for heaven. And so these are the things that Peter is thinking about as he writes this letter. Now, there's something about the approach of death that really does simplify uh, life in a very, very uh, good way. And the approach of death, when we know that death is approaching, when that happens in our lives, it has a way of refining things down in our lives to where we identify what are the most important things in life. And so it makes clear to a person the one, two, three, four things that are really important in life and then what really isn't important at all. And so the approach of death really distills life down to its essence and it separates within our life from what within our mind and our thinking and our understanding what is important in life and what is merely urgent in life. There's a little booklet called Tyranny of the Urgent, and a gentleman by, with the last name of Hummel wrote that. Every Christian ought to read that as a part of our Christian experience. And if we don't have them in the bookstore, Tom will order some and we'll have them in the next couple of weeks. It's just fabulous. But the title of it, The Tyranny of the Urgent, and, and one, one of the things that he proposes, and he says it a lot better than me does, so don't think that you don't still need to read it, but he brings forth the fact that there's a world of difference in life between what is urgent and what is important. And our lives have a way, even for us as Christians, have a way of being dominated by the urgent. It's the next thing. It's the next deadline. It's the next pressure point. And we roll from one thing to the next to the next. And then so often we can uh, spend months or years or decades in that kind of a mode and then one day look back and realize I was completely driven by the urgent, but none of it was truly important. And what was truly important in my life became a casualty of the urgent. And it's fabulous to realize that there's a difference between the two. And the approach of death causes us to stop and assess that difference and then uh, the pouring of our lives into what is truly important. And when someone is facing death, and that is a person who typically has assessed their life pretty carefully with a determination that they're going to use the remaining time that they have in this world, uh, not merely on the urgent, but on the important, and so, so that they don't waste their time and waste their words on what isn't important. Now, this whole laying of this context of, of death and the approach of death related uh, to Peter is significant for the one great point I want to bring out of this passage here this morning. And as we think about death, as, where Peter is, what he's thinking about at this point in time in his life and in his ministry, all of this domination of death around him, this is why it fascinates me that at a time like this, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, took the time to speak to us about the importance of reminders in our life as Christians. And Peter, given his calling to strengthen Christians through the teaching of God's Word, he certainly understood the importance of reminders in all of that, as does anyone who spends any time teaching or preaching the Word of God. And so he emphasized the importance of reminders in our lives no less than three times in four verses. Notice in verse 12. 
I will not be negligent to remind you. Verse 13. To stir you up by reminding you. Verse 15. That you always have a reminder of these things. Now what is a reminder? A reminder is something, is having something you know already in your mind then brought to your remembrance. So first of all, we learn something, then it goes into the memory bank, and you think about the mountains of information, not just book learning, but the mountains of information that we learn from relationships, experience, just living life, all of the things that are put into our memory. So much is in each of our memories here this morning. And then as we learn that particular something, it goes into the memory storage, and then we are later reminded of it in a way that brings it out of storage and we're able to put it to use. So we are reminded of things that we already know. Now, some of the reasons that reminders are necessary, I'm going to think of a couple of them off pretty easily, and the one that we would think of immediately for the reason that we need to be reminded is that we're so forgetful. So we know so much, but then we forget how much we know and how much is in there. And without a reminder, all of this stuff is just going to sit in there and will be any of any use to us. So we need reminders. There's an old joke that I heard a few years ago, and I really liked it. It's very silly, but I like silly jokes. And there are two elderly couples, of course. They were enjoying friendly conversation at one of the houses of one of the couples. And one of the men asked the other man, he said, Fred, how was the memory clinic that you went to last month? Oh, Fred said, it was outstanding. They taught us all the latest psychological techniques, visualization, association. It's, it's made a big difference for me. That's great, his friend said. What was the name of the clinic? Oh, Fred went blank. He thought and thought, but he couldn't remember. Then a smile broke across his face and he said, What do you call that flower with a long stem and the thorns? And his friend said, You mean a rose? He said, Yes, that's it. He turned to his wife and he said, Rose, what was the name of that clinic? <laughs> Some of us laugh because we, it's come down to that. Others of you laugh because you think it's so crazy and ludicrous. Boy, the joke will be on you one day. We won't rub it in now. I also like the story of two elderly women. They're out driving in a large car, and it's best that they drive in large cars. <clears throat> Both of them could barely see over the dashboard. So they're cruising along, they come to an intersection, and the stoplight is red, but they just went through. And the woman in the passenger seat thought to herself, I must be losing it. I could have sworn we just went through a red light. After a few more minutes, they came to another intersection, and the light was red again. They went right through it a second time. This time the woman in the passenger seat was almost sure that the, red, the light had been red and was really concerned that she was losing it. She was getting nervous, decided to pay very close attention to the road in the next intersection to see what was going on. And at the next intersection, the light was definitely red, and sure enough, they went right through it. And she turned to the other woman and she said, Mildred! Do you know we just ran through three red lights in a row? You could have killed us. And Mildred turned to her and said, Oh, am I driving? <laughs> uh, drive defensively, people. Drive defensively. So there's a lot that's stored up here, but we can't, we forget what's in there. And so even those of us with the best of memories, we find ourselves resorting continually to the equivalent of tying a string around our finger. And you think about how much of life is tied to reminders. And why do we need reminders except that we forget? So we have alarm clocks. We have sticky notes all over the house. 
We have people call us to remind us. Might have a receptionist to remind of a particular appointment. And now so much of this is done electronically. But you think about how much of life is reminding because we forget uh, so much. But Peter also speaks of the importance of reminders, not just because we're forgetful, but also as a means, verse 13, of keeping us stirred up spiritually. And the word stir there means to raise, to rouse, to wake up fully. You think about all of the spiritual things that have been put into our memory, all of the experiences we've had with God, all of the hymns and worship songs that we have sung to the Lord. Think about all of our history that we have with God. Think about all of the points and different sermons that we've heard or lights that have gone on for us spiritually when we're in a conversation with somebody else. All of these things that are loaded up into our memory that are spiritual in, in nature and how tragic it would be if there wasn't some means by which they could be brought to the forefront of our mind once again to enjoy once again, to celebrate once again. And so this is one of the reasons for reminders in the Scriptures is in order for us to celebrate the things that we would otherwise forget. And then in the the more exhortive vein, reminders keep us from falling asleep or falling asleep spiritually or in our relationship with the Lord. Now, the main... source of this reminding in our life of spiritual things is the Word of God. Now, God can remind us by His Holy Spirit independent of the Word, but most often it happens through the Word of God. And and Peter brings this out a little bit later in this same epistle of 2 Peter in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, one of the fascinating things about reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God is you don't begin to read the Word of God for any length of time except that you come to realize that God is really heavy into repetition. He is big, big time into reminding. There's a ton of repetition in the Bible. The Bible is a reminding book, and it addresses the same subjects and the same things over and over and over again in different ways, in order to take those truths and to bring them into a deeper and deeper place into our hearts and into our minds. God speaks of his love continually throughout the whole Bible. Why? I need to be reminded of that. If that ever just goes into the memory bank and I forget about it, then that's a tragic thing to have happen in a Christian life. So he reminds us of it continually. He speaks of his faithfulness All of the time. Why? Because I forget about it so often. And I need to be reminded of it all of the time. He speaks of our holiness and obedience to the word of God. He speaks of heaven. He speaks of hell, of eternity, of sin, of salvation. Over and over and over again in the Bible. One of the great things about going through the Bible and reading it from Genesis to Revelation, whether we do it uh, on our own as a part of our devotional life each each morning, and we say, okay, I want to read through the Scriptures uh, each year, or like we do on Sunday nights here. We certainly don't go through the Bible in one year around here on Sunday nights, a Bible study. But we, we study the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights. Two very significant things are happening when we do that. Number one, we are learning everything that is in that book. And number two, we are learning it in the exact proportion to which God wants those things to be taught. 
that he knows we need to hear those same things. And some things he teaches more or less periodically. Some things he teaches and reminds us of, it seems, every third page of the Bible. But he does it because he knows us so well and he knows what we need to hear over and over again. Now, the funny thing about Bible teachers or pastors, people like me, is that we all have our hobby horses. We have all, we're just like everybody else. We have things that are of more interest to us than maybe something else. So sometimes you can go to a church that maybe doesn't go through the Bible from one end to the other, or go through a book on Sunday morning. And so that pastor's responsibility each week is to find a passage in these 66 books that make up this Bible each week, a new passage and a new lesson to bring forward. And one of the challenges that a pastor in that kind of place faces is the fight against his interests or his hobby horse. And sometimes you can go into an environment like that and you notice that this man teaches the same sermon every week, but it's just a different text. He somehow works his hobby horse into it every single time. And it's a tendency in me. It's a tendency in everyone. But a going through the scriptures keeps us from falling prey to that kind of thing, then we hear everything that God wants to say and we hear it with the frequency that God knows that we need to hear it with. All through the Old Testament, God set up memorials. And what is a memorial except a reminder? The rainbow is a memorial of God. After the flood at the time of Noah... God made a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by flood. And he sealed that covenant by establishing a rainbow after it rains. In other words, so that we know that every time it rains, we don't, we don't all brace and go, Oh no, is it going to be 40 days and 40 nights and we all get wiped out? It's a reminder that God will not destroy the earth by flood again. Fire, yes. Flood, no. The pot of manna placed in the Ark of the Covenant was to remind the children of Israel of how faithful God had been to them in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they had been bad boys and goyles. And he had still been faithful to them. And that pot in that Ark of the Covenant was to remind them of what they would otherwise forget and that is the great faithfulness of God and his grace in their life. I was just reading this week in my own reading of the scriptures in the book of Joshua, where they crossed, the children of Israel crossed from into the promised land, and God caused the Jordan River to be stopped up for a time miraculously to allow the children of Israel to go into the promised land on dry ground. And the Lord spoke to Joshua to instruct the leaders of the 12 different tribes that they were to each take a great, two great stones. Each of them put one stone in a pile, 12 stones in the middle of the river, that, and then one stone in a pile of a monument of 12 stones on the outside of the river, on the side of the promised land. And then he restored the flow of the river. One became invisible and one was a visible reminder. And he told them why. So that when your children see this monument and they ask, what is the reason for that monument that you will be reminded of the miraculous thing I did here and instruct your children in what I, I have done? So it was to remember the miracle. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles were established as memorials. Why is so, you, if you go back, especially in the Old Testament, and you look at how much is memorial. It's a huge portion of the Bible is memorial. And why so much remembering, except that he knows how much we're prone to forget. Even without the aging process, our minds become great forgetteries. Then you go into the New Testament. There's the greatest memorial of all, the Lord's Supper. Jesus himself said, do this in remembrance 
of me. And one of the things about the Lord's Supper is it helps Christians and it helps churches, people like us, to keep the main thing, the main thing, to stay centered on the main thing. And the main thing, I use the word loosely, is Jesus and a personal relationship with him. Can a church lose sight of the fact that Jesus and a personal relationship with him is the main thing? Oh, yes. Can an individual Christian lose sight of the fact that this is all about Jesus and a personal relationship with him? Yes, we can. Easily, readily. And that's why I think that the Lord's Supper is a supper that is kept on a regular basis on the part of Christians all over the world because we're prone to forget that. And the Lord's Supper helps us not to forget that because that's the one thing we cannot forget. I'd like to close with a couple of applications related to reminders this morning. The first one is that no matter how mature or how established we may be as a Christian, no matter how much spiritual truth we know, we are still in need of reminders. And there comes a point in time as a Christian where we walk with them a long time, we attend church for years, we attend church for decades, we hear a lot of Bible teaching and instruction in the, of the Word. In our own devotional life, we are studying the Word of God and reading it. And so there comes a point in time for virtually all of us who are serious about learning the Bible where when we come into an environment like this, for instance, the teaching that we're going to hear is going to be less hearing something for the first time and being impacted in that way to now being reminded of truths that we already know and oftentimes we know very, very well. And there comes a point in time where it isn't very often that we say to ourselves, oh, I've never heard that before, or oh, that's the first time I've heard that. Because after decades of being in the Word of God, that happens less and less and less. Still happens, but less and less. And so what happens, the teaching of the Word of God in environments like this and beyond environments like this is that the teaching will be in the form of reminding us of things that we already know and sometimes we know very, very well. And so how do we respond to those reminders. Well, no, Christian, I'm going to state the obvious, but I would think that none of us would go into that place, but I know how important it is to state the obvious. No Christian should ever open up the Bible or ever be in an environment where the Bible is being taught and listening to a passage be read or a point being made from that passage ever think to themselves, already know that, and then disengage from what's happening. That should never, ever happen in our lives. Even though we know the truth and sometimes know it very, very well. The response to the Word of God when we come to that kind of a place in our Christian life is to learn to embrace the reminder as fully as we embrace the truth the first time that we heard it. There is a side of me that wishes that every time I read the Bible that it was as if I was reading it for the first time so that it would have that kind of impact upon me, that wow factor that, that it had upon me as I, as I read that. And so there's a, one side of you, I mean a misguided side that could even wish for that, for that kind of thing to happen in our lives but then there's another side of us who realizes that to come to fully appreciate something in the Bible, to fully understand something in the Bible, and then in that understanding then to appreciate that truth about God and then to allow that to take us deeper in our relationship with the Lord, that it takes 
a lot of repetition and reminders for that to happen. And when the Holy Spirit is the teacher, we can sit in a room like this in the privacy of our own heart. And a passage can be read or a point can be made related to a passage, even something that we already know. And what happens is, as we embrace that and we look and we say, Lord, I already know that, but I want this truth to impact me fresh and anew right now, just like it did the first time. And then the Holy Spirit will take our understanding of the depth of that passage another two feet down. Another three feet down. And you never know what kind of vein of ore you're going to find there. And so our appreciation and our knowledge becomes deeper. And so that's how the Word of God and the reminder, the things that we've heard before, responding to the reminder. The Bible is a living book, and it says so. The book of Hebrews, it says, the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive and it's powerful. And the reason it's alive and it's powerful is because it is the truth like nothing else is is the truth in human history or in human existence and because of the witness of the Holy Spirit to this book that he has inspired. It's a living book. And it makes the Bible different from All other writings in human history, it has a life that nothing else has. It's different from all other literature because it isn't merely literature. You take some great classic, A Tale of Two Cities, Robinson Crusoe. Take something historical, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich, some biographies. Take the greatest writings of mere men. And take that book, read it once, read it twice, read it three times, read it four times. And by the time you do, you will have gleaned fully the intent of the book, why it was written. You'll have explored the purpose of the book, the message of the book, as far as it can be explored. You'll have enjoyed the emotion of of enjoying that particular truth as far as it can. Then you pick up this book, the Bible, and if we were able to read it every year for a hundred years, there's the knowledge that we would be simply scratching the surface in terms of what is being communicated through this book. It's alive like nothing else is alive. And so there'll always be room to go deeper in our knowledge of the word deeper in our understanding of God and our appreciation of God, deeper into into a deeper place concerning the truths that we already know. And so whenever we... And one of the great things about that, too, in terms of it, the Bible being fresh and being new, is that every time we turn to it, we're not the same person we were when we opened it before. Every passage we hit in the Bible, sometimes we hit a passage in the Bible and we'll read that, and sometimes it'll be months or years before we read that again or we hear it taught. And yet we are completely different people in that span of time because of the work of the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ. My week, we all have a rhythm to our week, don't we? It has a pattern for most of us. The pattern of my week is Sunday to Sunday. That's just how it works. It's how I measure life. And boy, is life going by fast. But every time I come up behind this pulpit on a given week, I feel like I'm a brand new person. I have been through so much with the Lord in the previous week. So much has happened in my life. He has said so many things. I know it's true of your life as well. And so then I come and he's making these changes so dramatically all of the time in our lives. And then when we come to the passage, we are not the same person who read it three months ago. We've been through all kinds of life experience, disappointments, Hard news, high highs, challenges in our lives, 
betrayal, all kinds of things have happened. We've come in a completely different place in our relationship with the Lord. And so we come to it, and the Bible is the same. It never changes, but we're a different person reading it now. And that should always be the case, and it will always have life because of that change that's going on in our lives. It will always speak to us in a new and a fresh way as long as we're growing in Christ-likeness. And additionally, when God repeats himself in the Scriptures, is never, as I've said, so that we might tell ourselves, already know that and proceed to fall asleep. I listen to a lot of Bible studies, lots of Bible studies, because I love the Word of God, and I love good Bible teaching. That's why it's funny, you know, this, this whole political thing is going on right now, and we're going to elect a president, and people are making speeches and all of these things. This is my whole Christian life, though. And then they'll come on, the analysts will say, boy, that was the most amazing speech, and boy, he was on his game tonight, and this and all that thing. And I thought, I just... Listen to that speech, and I thought it was pretty mediocre. I don't think he's that great of a public speaker at all, candidly, whoever it might be. I'm not putting him down. But I have to remind myself, I am listening to some of, I am listening to some of the greatest teachers in teaching by access of the Internet that exist in the world today, and some of whom are, would be among the best in the last hundred years. And so you get spoiled at what we're able to listen to. So there's a lot of times I listen to Bible teaching and I recognize the passage very well. The points that are brought out of them, I know all of the points. Not always, but sometimes. And I stop and I tell myself, God, if it's so important to you to repeat this truth over and over again, Because God never uses vain repetition. Jesus taught us not to use vain repetition in prayer. Empty repetition, meaningless repetition. So when he repeats himself, it's for a reason. It wasn't just that this would be like a streamlined Bible with 30 pages in if he just said it once. And he says, boy, we're not going to be able to charge 60 bucks for something that small. It's all, it's all exactly as it's supposed to be. And I stop myself and I, and I say, Lord, if it's important enough to you to remind me, then it's very important to me to be reminded. And again, let that truth impact me in a fresh and new way in a, as an expression of honor toward you. My second uh, application, and it's the final one, is as a minister... In verse 12, Peter felt that if he failed to remind Christians of things that we already know, that it would represent negligence on his part. And this is very, very good for any teacher of the Scriptures to know. And many of you are teachers in this congregation. And so Peter tells us that there are three phases in a Christian's growth. First, we come to know. Second, we then become established in what we know. We begin to live and obey what we know. And then third, we have a need to be reminded. And sometimes when we start teaching the Bible, there's this can almost be, in some of us, this terminal self-consciousness of the fact that I am about to teach a Bible study and that virtually everyone in the room is completely familiar with, could probably teach it themselves, and is going to know all three points that I'm going to bring out before I even bring them out. And then you can become paralyzed by that. And so often a new Bible teacher will do something like this. They'll become in the grips of having to find something novel in the passage that nobody's seen before. Some nugget that no Bible teacher and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit ever seen in this passage, and now I'm going to bring that forth to you. If you ever discover something in a passage of the Bible that no one has ever discovered before in 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years, just Back away very slowly. 
from that Bible because you're about to teach, teach error. <laughs> and we just try to spare you that. These truths have been taught over and over and over again to every generation of God's people because we need to hear it. And so, but there can be that thing of, I've got to find the super something or a way of looking at this passage like nobody has seen before. And then everyone who knows the passage goes, boy, is that guy mutilating this thing. If he'd have just said what it says, my heart would have been blessed here this morning, you know, or wherever the context might be. Like Peter, in our teaching of the Word of God, there's a need to grow in our calling where we come to appreciate the need for repetition and the power of repetition and how important it is to God and how important it is to his people that we hear things that we already know over and over and over again. And with a little bit of experience, we come to realize that and then we lose our self-consciousness and we realize that the body of Christ, myself included, we are not in need of any new truths, but new experiences in the old truths. That's an old saying, and I believe it. And the Apostle Paul believed it. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write to you the same things is not tedious, But for you, it is safe. God reminds because we need to be reminded. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these Four verses here in this book. And it's a little truth in the grand scheme of things, but it's an important truth. And we thank you that you included it in your word. Thank you, Lord, for this perspective concerning how you see and how we are to see your reminders in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us. And then, Lord, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit to establish us in the truths that we learn. And then, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to constantly remind us of the things that we know but we would otherwise soon forget. And as we stand before you individually here this morning, Lord, we thank you for all of your reminders in our life. We thank you for this constant ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives to remind us at just the key moment of the things that we need to be reminded of. So much reminding represented in this room and we give you praise for it and we thank you for the people that you are making us into through those reminders and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.